I stand with Israel because I am a Bible-believing Christian. I believe the Bible. And as I, you know, I, I don't think that God wanted us to take a bottle of white out to the Bible every time it says Israel. When it says Israel, it simultaneously refers to the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob yes. and a piece of real estate at the same time. Yes. And if you think that, he, that, that the omnipotent, all-knowing God was thrown off guard because the Jews didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah and decided to revoke all those passages where he uses terms like forever and everlasting to do with his covenants that he'll restore them and bring them back and regather them as he has, then show me why you hang your faith on John 3.16. If he can break the promise to them, why won't he break it to us? Because he didn't break it to them, and he won't break it to us. Welcome to the Destined to Win podcast with Pastor Tim Masters. Pastor Tim is the senior pastor of Victorious Life Christian Center in Flagstaff, Arizona, welcoming a guest speaker for this message. I'm Joe Hardy, inviting you to join us for worship services Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. For more information on the ministries of Victorious Life Christian Center or to make a donation, Visit us online at vlccaz.org. That's vlccaz.org. Now, with today's message, here's a word from our guest. Tonight, I encourage you just to sit back and Open your heart and your mind as we welcome Christians United for Israel and Randy Neal tonight. Would you put your hands together for him? Thank you, Pastor Tim. Well, I arrived uh, Friday night not knowing what I was in for, and I feel like I'm adopted into a family already. So I really I thank you for just your hospitality and, and your warmness. I really do appreciate uh, just your open night, open-mindedness, and and just your warm welcome. Uh, how many of you were here last night or this morning? By a show of hands. Okay, so most of you. So I won't uh, I won't replow a lot of the same ground. We will do some overlapping. Um, for those of you that weren't here, you know I'm the Western Regional Coordinator for Christians United for Israel. I cover the 13 states that are west of Nebraska. I'm the senior staffer. I was hired by Pastor John Hagee uh, in uh, March of 2006 uh, as a volunteer for the state of California, and then actually brought on uh, as a paid staff member uh, in September of the same year. And we've been running to keep up with it. We were, when we were founded, we were founded uh, in San Antonio, Texas, with a little more than 400 members. And uh, today, you'll see a clip in a minute that's going to indicate a higher number than that. Uh, but we're on, the, we're on the threshold of breaking 2 million members. We're the largest pro-Israel organization in the country. And so, I want to, before we get started, I want, to, I want to give you a story that's kind of behind the story. And that is, uh, uh, you're not going to find it on our website, you won't find it in any of Pastor Hagee's books. I'm going to try to, I'll talk, have to talk like an auctioneer probably to be able to get this all done and get you out here on time, but I can do that. 
but you know what, what's curious is that you know about three and a half decades ago, uh, Pastor Hagee you know, went to Israel for the first time. He had told his wife Diana uh, that we're not going to go to Israel. He says we're not going to go to Israel, and I didn't. I've never asked him, but I know why he said that. He said that because he didn't need to walk where Jesus walked to know that Jesus walked there. Come on, yes. And uh, but one night he was watching. It was on 1975, I believe it was. He was watching a, a documentary film. It's called Apples of Gold, chronicling the Yom Kippur War in 1973, where Israel had just come out of a miraculous victory uh, in the Six Day War in 1967, and they were arrogant. They were under the notion that they were invincible. They were resting on their laurels with their rifle leaning in the, in the corner on the holiest day of their calendar when they were attacked by their Arab neighbors and all of a sudden, you know, it looked like they, like they were on the ropes. They were literally, as you would imagine in a foxhole, counting their ammunition and it did not look very good. Golda Meir called Richard Nixon at the time in the middle of the night to uh, beg for help and uh, his counsel, remember Nixon's in the throes of the Watergate scandal. He's got a millstone of shame hanging around his neck right now. And counsel is telling him, let the effing Jews bleed. That's his counsel. And, uh, and he remembers the words of his dying mother on her deathbed, said, if you can ever help the Jews, do it. And so he did. He, uh, he responded to their plea. He, he had their IDF commandos or, or military personnel come to, to the southwest, New Mexico and Arizona, actually, to be briefed on how to handle the military hardware that was being sent uh, to their aid. And, and, and the Lord used, you know, we want to think about the parting of the seas and the pillar of smoke and the column. And we think of Esther, you know, and, and, and other righteous Gentiles like Corey Ten Boom and her dad Casper. But he'll, he'll use an, an unrighteous Gentile too if he has to, to get the job done. And he used Richard Nixon as a de- defense and the deliverer of Israel at that time. And as the documentary was flickering to a close and they're watching the credits, he leaned over to Diana and he said, we're going to go to Israel. And as he tells the story, he went as a tourist and he came back as a Zionist. And it would happen when he was at the Western Wall when he realized, he looked over and he saw those rabbis with tears streaming down their face and he realized that they represent the roots of his own faith. You can take Christianity, you don't need Christianity to explain Judaism, but you take away Judaism and there is no Christianity. And he realized that he didn't really fully understand the, the Hebraic roots of his own faith. The biblical mandate that he was aware of had no evidence of being manifested in his life. And so he felt convicted to do something, and he felt that the Lord put it on his heart to, when he came back to unite Christians to do something powerful for Israel, to, to unite Christians to, to, and, and build, a, build a, a bridge of reconciliation to the Jewish community. And so uh, he got back, and on his own dime, don't record this. Well, you can, I don't care if you record it, just don't post it on YouTube. If, on his own dime, he takes $100,000 of his own money for a three-day conference for just 30 guys. He's going to bring them to San Antonio. And these are not; these are generals in Christendom. This is not the guy that has a popular Christian TV show. It's the guy that owns the broadcasting company. It's not the guy that has a popular book. He owns the publishing company. If you're catching my drift, these are generals with armies beneath them that can take a hill when a hill has to be taken. Brings them to San Antonio on his, you know, on his, you know, dime, and uh, to unveil this would-be organization to educate Christians about the horrific history under the banner of Christendom to the Jewish people so that we could begin to change the trend so it doesn't repeat itself, and to begin to build that bridge of, of reconciliation and foster a sense and spirit of hope with the Jewish people that maybe they do have a friend in the Christian community after all. 
And so because of that, because these events, these educational solidarity events that this organization would do are not church services, this is a church service. I'm not talking about this tonight. I'm talking about the Middle East updates and nighttime and Rizal events that we do elsewhere. That they would be solidarity events, not church services. They would be by design, without exception, non-conversionary to the Jewish people. They'd be an opportunity for the two to come together to foster relationship. That's lunch break for the first day of the three-day conference. They break for lunch at 11.30. 29 of the 30 go to the foyer. They call their office and they say, get me an earlier flight home. I want nothing to do with an organization like this. Fast forward to the fall of 2005. The president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, is asking the world to imagine a world without Zionism. Anybody know the other two words of that quote? And America. And there, you know, it comes out that he said Israel should be wiped off the map. And people say, you don't know Farsi. That's not what he said. He didn't say wiped off the map. Well, what did he say? Well, he said um, blotted from the pages of time. That still sounds kind of ominous to me. So Pastor Hagee is invited to do a special address to Israel's Knesset, their parliament. And when he's done speaking, one of the then members of the parliament come up and he grabs him by the sleeve and he pulls him over and he says, i got a question for you. You know, when the rockets are coming in from Gaza, when the vests are exploding on buses and in pizza parlors, Jews cancel their trips out of fear. Christians book their trips spontaneously to come over and show us support. They'll, they'll pay inflated prices because there's no lead time. They fill the buses they fill the restaurants, they fill the hotels, they shop at the souvenir stores. They're the lifeblood of our tourist economy, but they're not united. The, the, the Christians at the table in the restaurant have no idea who the Christians at the table next to them are, and the Christians in the bus on the sites seeing the tour, the tour sites have no idea who the Christians in the bus are behind them are. It says, could you imagine what you Christians could do to impact U.S.-Israel relations if you could unite and Pastor Hagee remembered 30 years ago those 29 guys that cut and left him hanging on 100 grand. And he said, Mr. Netanyahu, I don't think God can unite the Christian community. But on that long flight home, he got to thinking, and he thought maybe, you know, maybe we should try it again. And he made a phone call to Jerry Falwell, and he made a call, phone call to Jack Hayford and to a number of other leaders in Christendom, and they said, yes, it is time to do it again. And... They, he invited uh, about 400 and some odd Christian leaders to come to San Antonio on their dime this time. Braced his family and staff to pretend that somebody threw a hornet's nest in the room because when they got to the non-conversionary dynamic, we're going to be up till 2 in the morning arguing over a mission statement. And when he mentioned it, you could heard a pin drop. Everyone was on the same page. And when a show of hands was asked, who's going to go to D.C. to stand with Israel, every hand went up in the air. So... That was to preface this short clip. Some of you have seen this clip a couple times. Now you'll be able to see it in a better context. Israel's fight is our fight. We are one. We are united. We will not be discouraged. We will not be defeated. We will not be intimidated. We will not sit down. We will not be silent. We are the worst nightmare of the anti-Semites of the world. The victory is going to be ours.
thank you. Thank you for standing up for Israel. Thank you for standing up for the truth. Thank you for standing up for the one and only Jewish state. And may God bless you all. May God bless the United States of America. Thank you all. We are Christians United for Israel. United for Israel began in February 2006 with 400 evangelical leaders in San Antonio. Today we are the largest pro-Israel organization in America with over 1.25 million members who are ready to respond to the needs of Israel. That's uncanny. It's got to be God. That's how I see it. The only way that you can pull that many people together in so short a period of time, uh, and you're talking about Christians from all across different denominations, is that they find a common denominator outside of Jesus, and that is God's people, Israel. It's a very important initiative, uh, uh, and the purpose is education. Uh, we wanted to educate uh, the Hispanic community in white we need to support the state of Israel. And so when we look at the Jewish narrative, the, the, the biblical, the theological, the scriptural, it's easy for us as, as biblicists, if you will, in our community to look at the Bible and say, not only is there a reason, but there's a responsibility and there's a right to support the Jewish state. And that's something that I'm proud to say that many, many of my African-American colleagues, pastors, friends, just educate us. Once we know we're on board, we're on board 100%. whether or not they're pro-Israel, 66% of Americans say they are. But when asked their position on the conflict, only 32% of college students say they're pro-Israel. But I have a request, a plea to you. I urge you. Redouble your effort on the campus. It's a very hostile place. We like to say that our college students are on the front lines of the battlefield. And that's because there's various opposition on college campuses. You've got opposition from student groups. you got opposition from faculty and staff. Um, opposition from biased professors in the classroom. So there's enormous amounts of uh, opposition that students are up against when they're trying to do their pro-Israel activism on college campuses across the nation. People don't see the Israel issue from the light that a college student does. And I know this because I was, when I was in Middle Eastern Studies on my campus and I was getting involved with Kufi as a student, my experience with the Israel issue is far different than people in my church, people in my family, people in the community. You're not going to go to your grocery store and people are chanting Israel's apartheid state and the dairy aisle. You know, but you're going to find that pretty much anywhere you go on a college campus. Any major university has seen some level of anti-Israel sentiment, whether it's institutionalized or into the education system or it's clubs and other groups supported by faculty and staff on campus. I come to Kufai summits and events such as SALT to be better equipped with the truth and the facts. Abraham Lincoln said the philosophy of the classroom today will be the philosophy of the government tomorrow. Summit allows us to equip ourselves with that education, with that knowledge, with that training to go out there and really make a difference for Israel advocacy, for Israel, and to support the people of Israel. Thank you. 
Thank you, CUFI, for what you do. There are no greater supporters of the state of Israel than Christians united for Israel, the people at this conference, particularly the people here at dinner tonight. As a Jewish woman serving in the United States House of Representatives, I thank you for your extraordinary support. I do not support Israel because I am a Jew. I support Israel because I am an American, and it is in America's best interest to support its most reliable ally in the planet and the only democracy in the Middle East, and that, my friends, is the state of Israel. As the Jew stands in prayer, says, Miyayan Yavo Ezri, where is my help going to come from? I'm surrounded. I'm aligned. God has answered our prayers. God has sent Kufai to the Jewish people. That's Irving Roth. Irving is one of my closest friends. He's my adopted dad, and we travel at least once a year for a couple weeks on the road going to universities here in the story. There's not very many Holocaust survivors alive today that actually were liberated from camps. If you see a lecture advertised, chances are they were an infant that were whisked away to a Christian home, and they tell the horrid story of the loss of their family. But very few can give a first-hand account of what it was like to see the community devolve around them and have friends turn on them and uh, see them demonized and then actually end up being in a camp and surviving that horrific ordeal. And I say all that uh, to tell you that uh, I've been speaking with our campus division and uh, since we've already raised money for several scholarships from Flagstaff to go to our D.C. summit, uh, we just have to find a a date and we'll bring Irving Roth as a guest speaker to Northern uh, Arizona University. I got a couple of disclaimers uh, to uh, to throw out there to you. And I, I shared them before, and, I'll, and I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because if you Google us, you'll find a lot of uh, things that are not very flattering about us. Because if you're a Christian, there's critics, and if you're a Christian that loves Israel, there's a whole lot of critics. And and so uh, and, and if you're a Christian, you know that works with the Israeli government, then they think that you're dual covenant, or they, they, they there are all kinds of allegations that people assume. So let me just, as I've done the last two times, let me clarify some things, put some asterisks up. We are not an interfaith organization. We're not an ecumenical organization. We are an evangelical Christian organization. And and I had a sign up on the first event that we did that said, I stand with Israel because I'm a Christian. That sign is really got a blatant typo in it. I don't stand with Israel because I'm a Christian. I stand with Israel because I am a Bible-believing Christian. I believe the Bible. And as I, you know, I, I don't think that God wanted us to take a bottle of white out to the Bible every time it says Israel. When it says Israel, it simultaneously refers to the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes. and a piece of real estate at the same time. Yes. And if you think that, he, that, that the omnipotent, all-knowing God was thrown off guard because the Jews didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah, and decided to revoke all those passages where he uses terms like forever, and everlasting to do with his covenants that he'll restore them and bring them back and regather them as he has. 
then show me why you hang your faith on, Matt, on, on John 3.16. If he can break his promise to them, why won't he break it to us? Because he didn't break it to them, and he won't break it to us. So the, the disclaimer is, you know, I don't make, when I'm working with the Jewish community, I don't make a secret about it, and I don't make an apology for it. I believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And, you know, the caveat is, is that, uh, you know, that I don't demand that they agree with me theologically before I'm going to stand with them as their friend and ally and hold up their arms and put the, my hand in the small of their back when their enemies are on the march. And we banter because a lot of us think we're on the, at the end times. A lot of us think that there's not a lot of sands in the hourglass. Some of us are driven by that. Some of us aren't. I'm, I'm, I'm driven by what I see as a biblical mandate. I don't, know, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I'm driven by a biblical mandate because I'm, I'm going to be judged on how I respond to the word of God. Right. And so with that, I banter and, and, and joke around with my rabbi friends, and we tore a tussle. And they go, how could you think that he's the Messiah? And I go, how could you think he's not the Messiah? And we agree to disagree, and we tongue-in-cheek say, when the Messiah comes, we'll ask if it's his first or second visit, and one of us will change our theology. But until then, we're going to agree to disagree. The second disclaimer that is extremely important, and, and I get this a lot, people that gravitate towards these events often don't have the right gears and sprockets turning. Being pro-Israel is not synonymous with being anti-Arab. God doesn't love Israel or the Jews any more than he loves the Arabs or any, anything else that he's created, any, any, of his, any other of his kids. I will, without any reservation or hesitation, call a spade a spade when I'm talking about an individual or an organization that is doing evil. And the worst enemies the Palestinian people have ever had are their own leaders that have thrown them under the bus to assure that they remain an infested, festering wound in the eyes of the international community, as, as a leverage to demonize Israel in the eyes of the international community. They've been, they've been held down with a boot on their throat. And one of the things that we need to do is, is illuminate that to get that boot off of their throat. But, but if you know somebody that thinks that loving Israel means hating the Arabs, because we've got, you know what, you take the Arabs out of the equation. We've got chapters where when we didn't understand why the Jews didn't under, receive the Messiah... We didn't understand it, so we didn't trust it, and we didn't trust it, so we didn't like it, or didn't want it around, and pretty soon we were setting down our Bibles and reaching for our torches and pitchforks, and some of the most horrific chapters in the history of Christendom happened to the Jewish people. And so as days of the Holocaust are taking their mark to rerun on the international stage, don't let those other, don't let Christendom ever fall into that groove ever again. So that, that's something that we need to stand watch on. And so, as we just saw that, that DC uh, clip at, at the end there, uh, you know, it kind of, kind of prompted me that there is something else. There's another disclaimer. Up until uh, just last year, we were a single talking point issue. We, were, we, didn't, we didn't allow anybody to speak to their elected officials on a CUFI visit to DC or a local uh, elected official's office unless it was pertinent to Israel US relations. And all of a sudden, persecution of Christians showed up on the horizon. And here we are, the largest, you know, one of the largest Christian grassroots organization. And, uh, and we had to wrestle with, you know, where we stood, what we could do, what was within our reach. 
and we wrestled with this with a lot of the same things that that you're going to be wrestling with by the end of this presentation tonight. This is not a this I, I misspoke. This is kind of a church service, but this isn't going to be a Bible study tonight. This is going to be an update an update on what's going on with the persecution of Christians and understanding some of the elements of what's behind what's happening in present day. This is not a far-reaching historical overview of the persecution of Christians going back to the days of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, you know, this is something that's happening. Just We're going to just cover what's happening in the recent days and understanding the ideology that's driving it. But before we get there, we have to, we have to just start out. I mean, look what John, John says in, in 15. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We know the Bible tells us that we're going to be persecuted. And then, you know, so we want to, we want to you, know, you know, clinch our fists. This is what Luke says. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So these are very convicting passages when it, when it comes to looking at what we can do. And so I'm not up here saying that we need to, you know, draw swords or or called arms, our military and our governments and coalitions around the world are doing what they can do and what they think they needs to be done and, and trying to hold back a, a rapidly rising tide of evil. But what, we, what I want us to do tonight by the end of the evening is to look at we, what we can tangibly do to bring genuine real help to those Christians that are in dire need right now, because it could be us one day. It could be us one day that's wondering, what does the world know? Does anybody, does anybody care? Is anybody listening? In Ankawa, the Christian quarter of the Kurdish capital city of Erbil, there are makeshift prayers. Many of the Christian refugees here came from Karakosh. Many community centers, many schools, many churches are hosting thousands of thousands of Christians who recently escaped Mosul and Karakosh. These people are living in a very dire situation, but in reality, they are the lucky one. Many haven't been able to make it out. This family of 10 ran for their lives when Islamic State militants overrun their town. This is all they have been able to take with them. We were terrified to face ISIS. They gave us few choices. Convert to Islam, pay protection tax, or we were told if we don't submit to Allah, we will be beheaded. Erbil has been a safe haven for tens of thousands of Christians fleeing other conflicts in Iraq but is now facing a grave threat of its own. There's no more Iraq for us. The only hope for the minorities in Iraq, in Kurdistan, for, for the Yazidis, for the Christians, for the Shabaks, for the Turkmen's, now is Kurdistan. The news of the American airstrike has come as a great relief. The Christian community here holding up together the only thing they can do now is to pray. Georgol, BBC News, Erbil. So 
So we'll take a look at the Middle East. You know, you've got a pretty big neighborhood there, and Israel makes up less than 1%, actually about one-eighth of 1% of the neighborhood that she's in. So, and let's go back in time to kind of understand the backdrop and the, the ideology that we're dealing with right now. You have the end of the World War I, the Ottoman Empire falls, and when the Ottoman Empire fell, you had Muslim scholars that were bewildered. And they were very puzzled. How is it possible that if Allah is supreme, if Islam is the true religion, how could these infidels bring down the Arab Emirate? And some of these Muslim scholars in Egypt got together, led by one called Hassan al-Banna. This was in 1928. And they founded the, Muslim, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. The sole purpose of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood was to was to inoculate their youth and themselves from corruption and influence from the West, restore Muslim nations back to Quranic law or Sharia law, and once that had been established, bring that good news to the rest of the world and eventually, essentially, establish a global caliphate. Now, some people in this room probably think I am a conspiracy theorist, uh, but we'll show you some clips a little bit later yeah, with them speaking, and all you'll hear is their own words, and then you can judge for yourself. Uh, Jimmy Carter and the New York Times would assure us that the Muslim Brotherhood has denounced all violence, and that they have, uh, you know, that they're a democratic, peace-loving organization that wants to abide by, you know, democratic dipl diplomatic rule. Uh, their charter, when they were founded in 1928, was: Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, the Quran in our law. The Quran is our law, and jihad is our way. Dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. That was their, that was their charter in uh, 1928. But since uh, the New York Times report and Jimmy Carter, and the, the organization that they were referring to, their charter is Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, the Quran is our law, jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. They've not changed a single word. And if you want to understand some of the conflict in the Middle East, you can look no further than Hamas. Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. Their charter, their constitution, does not start with we the people. This is how their charter starts. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it, from the Hamas charter. Hamas admitted just recently that they were guilty. They were the ones that ordered the kidnapping of the three yeshiva boys, the, the, the Orthodox Jewish students that were waiting for somebody to pick them up. It was diabolical. It was not a random act. They, these, these Hamas operatives actually dressed up as Hasidic Jews to fool the boys into getting into the car, and they were killed shortly after. The hate is spoon-fed at an early, early age, and that is the most abhorrent form of child abuse right there. We were able, we, we did an emergency solidarity trip to Israel in August, right at the peak of Operation Protective Edge, the, the war with Hamas firing in some of the most advanced missiles Iran has in their arsenal. They'd smuggled them into Gaza through the dozens and dozens and scores of, of tunnels from Egypt into the Gaza Strip, and they were firing them into Israel. And... Um, so we were there to do an emergency solidarity trip to, to show support for Israel and you know, we were not buying the narrative on the international talking head news and we really we could see, we were able to discern that dark is not light and evil is not good and we were there to tell them that. 
And uh, one of the times that we were there, and this and Pastor Tim, when we go to Israel, we'll probably have the opportunity to meet with one of them as well. But we met with one of the fathers of those three boys. We had 50 pastors from every state, one pastor from Washington, D.C. And we thought that we were going to be there to bring this, you know, encouraging message of never again and you've got friends. And he ended up ministering to us. And he ended up ministering to us, and every pastor in that room was, was weeping by the time he was done because he showed great encouragement and uh, that his son actually gave a gift of hope to the nation of Israel because in the death of those three boys, it galvanized the nation. Uh, any Jewish person that you know well enough to banter with will tell you that if you put two Jews in a room, you'll have five different opinions. And, and that is, uh, that's very evident when you take a look at the Israeli government and their parliament. They're, it's about to implode right now. Uh, the, the you know, coalition that was super strong four months ago is bickering like kids right now. And, then they're, and they're, they're, we don't know what it's going to happen. They'll have new elections to rebuild it in March. But the reality is, is that that event uh, and that war galvanized that nation. And they realize that you know, when... when when the going gets tough, they only have each other. The, the lesson that they learned and they had to realize was there is no one in the world that's going to come to rescue them. They have to do it themselves. They can, you know, we can say all that we want, but they know that they, they are responsible for their own survival and destiny. And one of the things that happened that changed our single talking point issue was that in the throes of all this Christian persecution, it was our Jewish friends that came to us and grabbed us by the lapel and shook us and said, what are you doing? You know, that's great that you're trying to, you know, help Jews. That's great that you're trying to counter the international opinion and tell the truth and level the playing field and make sure Israel's accurately portrayed on college campuses. But what are you doing about the persecution of your brothers and sisters, the Christians that are in the Middle East? And all we could do is quote, you know, well, we were told that we're, they're going to be persecuted and, you know, they've got to turn the other cheek. We really, it wasn't in our to-do box. And then they really convicted us to, uh, to take a change of track on that. And so we did. We, did, we very strategically examined what we could do as Christians, how we could, what we could do to leverage our member base of nearly 2,000 members and the influence that we've grown and fostered with our elected officials. And... Uh, and this is going to be a very, you know, I made you a promise when I came up here on Saturday night. I told you that Saturday night was going to be not warm and fuzzy and that, that Sunday morning was going to be very encouraging. Was it? And I also said that, that Sunday night is going to be way less warm and fuzzy. And I'm going to keep my word. But just bear with me because we'll emerge out the other end with some, with, with, with some hope and some things that we can do within our reach. So let's understand the Muslim Brotherhood a little bit. You've got, uh, you know, you, uh, you're taking a look at Egypt. Egypt was, you know, was under the reign of, of, uh, of uh, Mubarak for decades. And he was not well liked among his peers. Uh, Anwar Sadat, you know, a lot of people think that he was a great, you know, for, you know peace beacon. Uh, when, when, you know, because he was the one that entered into the peace treaty with Israel. When Anwar Sadat was assassinated... There was no flag at half mass. There were people on the streets drinking their, you know, Turkish coffees just like any other day. There he was not missed, and Mubarak was no, was no, you know, was no icon of of love amongst the majority of the Egyptian people either, because he was looked at as a Zionist collaborator. And so when he's pulled down and somebody's going to be doing stump speeches to take his place of office, 
they do not want to be affiliated with his position on Israel. And so you have you know, somebody that comes up from the Muslim Brotherhood. You've got Mohammed Morsi that comes up. When the riots were breaking out in Cairo's town square, and it looked like it was almost going to be a rerun of Tunisia, where people were being killed, the Muslim Brotherhood literally, literally came riding in like knights on camels and horses into the town square, and it was like the big brother and voice of reason had arrived. And they calmed down the youth, they got things together, and they, they actually tried to organize. This group that had been underground and illegal for, for decades all of a sudden had a platform and had an audience to listen to them. Now, here's a little caveat about the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. The Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, it, it tried a, a coup to take over Egypt in, in its early days during the, in the 50s. Uh, or, I'm sorry, a little bit prior to that. And uh, nobody thought it was popular. I mean, nobody, nobody really, nobody gave it a big deal. For decades, it would hover at just a couple, maybe 20,000 members. But when all of a sudden, in the center of the former Arab Emirate, is established and pronounced a Jewish state declaring its independence, within about a year, its membership zipped way past 100,000 members. Under an illegal organization, but it zipped past 100,000 members. Again, this is their charter. Allah is our objective. The Prophet is our leader. The Quran is our way, or is our law. Some say the Constitution. And, uh, or, sorry, the Quran is our constitution, jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. And for those of you that think, Randy, you are going to pull a hamstring, you know, trying to, you know, you know cast fear about the, the agenda of the Muslim Brotherhood to us, I think you're really kind of painting a dark picture. You're about to see the lead imam from the Muslim Brotherhood, and he was the front man on Mohammed Morsi's campaign trail before he ran, when he was during the elections before the vote, this is the guy that did the front act. He came out to warm up the audience for him. And there would be 100,000 people in a town square. And before Morsi gave his speech, this is the man that his job was to warm up the crowd. Read the subtitles. <laughs> ليست القاهرة 
ولا مكة ولا المدينة وإنما القدس إن شاء الله وسيكون هتافنا على القدس رايحين شهداء بالملايين على القدس رايحين شهداء بالملايين على شهداء بالملايين القدس رايحين شهداء بالملايين القدس رايحين كل اليهود طيار النعاس يلا يا عشاق الشهاده كلكم حماس من عيون كل اليهود يلا يا عشاق الشهاده كلكم حماس من عيون كل اليهود طيار النعاس يلا يا عشاق الشهاده كلكم حماس انسوا العالم كل العالم وانسوا المؤتمرات شيلوا سلاحكم صلوا قيامكم شيلوا سلاحكم صلوا قيامكم وادعوا رب الناس وادعوا رب الناس من عيون كل اليهود يلا يا عشاق الشهداء من عيون كل اليهود طيار النعاس يلا يا عشاق الشهداء I think you get the gist. So the, the, the reason that I wanted you to take a look at that is the Muslim Brotherhood is they are the benchmark. They are the, their ideology is the foundation of all of these groups. You, your eyes can roll in your heads when you look at all these different terrorist organizations and they all splinter. One splinters off of this and they, one that was called this today is called that tomorrow and a week later they'll be called that again. And it looks like, it, and it's easy to be deceived because we're looking at it through a Western ideology that those are differentiating factors of morals and values, and they don't want to be associated with that. And uh, the reality is, is that they're not. They're, they are uh, they're differing degrees of patience is all that they are. They're differing degrees of patience. And who, how willing are you to wait and bide your time for us to have the upper hand? Uh, Muslim Brotherhood waited decades. And Al Taliban and al-Qaeda, I didn't like it. Sayyid Akub, who is a... Uh, one of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood wrote a book called Milestones that lays out their... If you go on Amazon, you can buy Milestones. It's a super short read, and it is a thumbnail sketch of their ideology and their roadmap to achieve it. Uh, if you want to be deceived, thinking that the Sunnis and the Shiites are going to fight it out and duke it out and be distracted and they'll, they'll wear each other out, they have the same ideology. You know, Khomeini read Milestones, and he thought, thought this is exactly dead on, and he had it translated into Farsi, and now it's their handbook too. They just they disagree on some other things. But what I'm, what I'm driving at is all these groups that we're dealing with now that are responsible, some, and some of them are responsible for persecution of Christians, many of them are not. But they all have the same ideology, and that is a global caliphate. And... Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was willing to wait decades and decades and decades for it. Taliban and Al-Qaeda said, no, we're not willing to wait. And so the Twin Towers fall. Now, if you, if you want to go on, online, you can find documentaries and studies of, of how, you know, of the recruiting tactics of Al-Qaeda. And one of the things that you'll find is that the reoccurring theme among young recruits in Al-Qaeda was that they thought that they were going to sign up and they were going to be part of the super varsity team. They were going to have a membership card in their wallet that was going to impress all their friends, 
because they were going to be part of the, the, you know, the real elite action squad. And then they, you know, they were going to be part of the really bad crew. And then they would go ahead and become an official member. And then they'd be dispatched to go sit in an Internet cafe and stare at a computer or at a laptop and monitor people's blog sites to see what they're saying. And they were bored stiff. They couldn't, they, they, they would, that was not at all what they were promised or what they were looking forward to. And along comes ISIS. And they promise to put an AK-47 in your hand tomorrow. And their, their recruiting you know, has skyrocketed. So that's a, we'll, we'll look at that a, li- a little bit more in a moment. But getting back to, the, to e- Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood, when the Muslim Brotherhood was in control, and the reason that Morsi lost his seat, was he, it wasn't because he, the elections were corrupt. The elections were extreme, they were absolutely legit. He crossed every T and dotted every I, and he was fairly and squarely elected. The problems came when he got greedy once he was in power. He started cutting corners on the Constitution and bending things so that he had more power than it was, than it was supposed to be entitled to him. He realized that the military forces, the military leaders, had incredible power because they were the pillars of the stability in the region. And when he started tampering with those and wanting to replace them with people that he considered loyal to himself, they, they, you know, they pulled their trump card. And they overpowered him. And then, so we removed Mubarak, which was an iron-fisted dictator, had in a guy that came in by the will of the people and removed him and replaced him with an iron-fisted dictator, LCC. When Mubarak was in, was in, I mean, when Morsi was in power and it was clear that, that Egypt was going to fall under Muslim Brotherhood rule, hundreds of thousands of Coptic Christians knew that that meant that they were going to fall into a demitex. If they were lucky if they were going to be tolerated at all, that they would have to pay a tax to be able to live as a second-class citizen, and they were bracing themselves for that. But it didn't happen because Morsi, or, uh, Morsi was unseated. And this is what happened after that. As the crisis in Egypt deepens, Coptic Christians are feeling the consequences of the hostility between supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood and the country's military leadership. Dozens of churches and Christian-owned homes and businesses have been torched and looted since violence broke out last week when security forces cleared Muslim Brotherhood protest camps in Cairo. Supporters of ousted President Mohamed Morsi have blamed Christians for playing a leading role in the military's removal of the Islamist leader in July. Although the Coptic community usually keeps a low profile in the country, it has generally supported the military and the opposition since Morsi was elected last year, with large groups of Christians participating in rallies leading up to Morsi's ouster. The precedent had been set. The Quran tells to honor the people of the book, Christians and the Jews. We are to live as second-class citizens, but the precedent has been set. And we are, you know, by most standards, we are now apostates. We are unbelievers. And we could be killed, and if we're, you know, it, it'll be up to our creator to determine what our fate would be. And so... Uh, I'm not trying to make you wring your hands. I'm just, I just wanted you to have a solid backdrop of, of the overwhelm. That's the lion's share of the ideology of the groups that are at hand right now in the Middle East. That same exact ideology. All the different names. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. The changes to the Islamic State in, in Syria or in, 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 uh, in Levant, which Levant is essentially kind of a thumbnail sketch of the former uh, Ottoman Empire, which included all of Palestine, aka Israel, and uh, and they they surprised themselves. They come into Iraq. They they did not anticipate the overwhelming 
open arm welcome that they were going to get from the Sunni former officers in the Iraqi office, uh, army that would happily lend their support to them and, and enhance their effectiveness and over in trying to gain ground. And barely, not even two months, they took over a third of the country, including oil wells. Uh, they were one of the most organized terrorist organizations in the country. You know, uh, last night I quoted, I told you, one to two million dollars a day that they're gaining in, in black market oil revenue. Today it's, re- it's estimated between two and three million dollars a day. They have over two billion dollars in cash assets at hand. So uh, this is just a, a map of, of, of the Christian populations. This is one of the most current ones that I could get my hands on. But you can take, if you take a look at the dark regions, Egypt and Syria, uh, those are the ones that the, Egypt should still be solid and intact. Uh, Syria is they're they're fleeing uh, in droves. So nearly a million have already been taken in by Jordan. How Jordan is going to sustain a million refugees is is anybody's guess. The international community is going to have to step in. Now people are asking Turkey uh, to start doing the same thing. Uh, but we know what's happening to Iraq. It's hard to even get accurate numbers on what's happening in Iraq. Uh, it's estimated that, that there's well over 20,000 Christians in Iraq that have been murdered. You know, but they keep every time they have a number, uh, they discover another mass grave. They just they, they, the United Nations is is uh, having trouble because it's such a hostile area. Nobody can. They're not allowing any type of of. Uh, UN patrols to come in, to, even for humanitarian aid assistance. That's uh, it is. It's not a haphazard ragtag team of guerrillas. These guys are a well-oiled machine. Uh, they 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 put together an annual prospectus and portfolio that lays out all of their projected you know goals and all of their investment uh, intentions and, and assets at hand. They've got a government so that that's in place so that if that if a drone takes out a leader, he's replaced instantly with somebody else that's been groomed and trained to take over his take take over that helm. And I'll share this with you again. I, I have another clip of a friend of mine. I shared this uh, Saturday night. I'll share it again tonight. I got a friend of mine that uh, his name is Ami Horowitz. Uh, if you ever looking for a movie to watch some night, go on Netflix or or iTunes and get you and me. That's you period n period me, and it's a documentary. It's a, it's a it's an expose documentary, a Michael Moore type of punctia documentary on the United Nations, where he went in and actually looked at at, at the despicable workings and dealings with the United Nations. That's you know, he's a filmmaker, and so he decided to make a film about the condition on our college campuses. And he took it, I don't know where he got it, but he got his hands on an ISIS flag. And he went to the University of Berkeley, and he pulled it out on the steps of the University of Berkeley, and he started waving it. And he waved it for two hours, claiming ISIS is love. We only kill people because you make us, the Americans making us kill people. We don't want to, but we have to kill people. ISIS is love, join ISIS. You know, I am ISIS, you know, we, you know ISIS is good. He waited for two hours, and, pe- and all, the only response he got from people was, good luck, man, and nobody got in his face at all. So he, he took the time just for, out of kicks and curiosity. He lit up a cigarette, and a guy jumped right on him and said, hey, you can't do that here. But they let him wave an ISIS flag for two hours, and the only, the only feedback he got was positive encouragement. He folded up the flag, pulled out an Israeli flag, started waving it. He couldn't, it, it, dozens of people jumped on him, called him baby killer, called him genocidal maniac. 
just just the most despicable. He, uh, he wished he got a quarter for every time somebody flipped him off. He would have been rich. And uh, and I suggest to you that it's because the people know that if you confront ISIS, something bad is going to happen to you. And if you confront Israel, nothing's going to happen to you because they're not afraid of critics. But uh, I digress. I just I I just I, I want us to realize that we're, at the end of the day. This message that we're contending with, this narrative has to be addressed on our college campuses as well. So you may be thinking, I'm not going to ask you to write a check to send a food basket somewhere. Uh, we're going to be looking at what we can do here and what we can do tangibly in Washington, D.C. Uh, to, to change the terrain as well. Because there are nations that are receiving hundreds of billions, hundreds of millions or over a billion dollars of United States foreign aid that turned a blind eye to the massacre and persecution of Christians under their watch, and, and we're going to do something about that. A lot of people are, are saying, you know, ISIS, any day now, ISIS is going to turn and attack Israel. It, you know, ISIS is, ISIS's favorite, you know, target is an unarmed civilian. And when they run into armed resistance, as they have in Kurdistan, they don't get the attraction that they've enjoyed when they're attacking Christians in Syria or in Iraq. Libya was a, a vacuum of chaos, and now they're getting a foothold in Libya as well. And they knocked on the door and tried to ch- ch- you know, see if the, if the bolts would hold in Jordan. And I think they saw that if they're going to knock on the door in Jordan, they're going to deal with Israel too, because Israel's not going to let them get foot in Jordan. And so a lot of experts are thinking, well, because of this Islamic ideology, obviously I, Israel's going to be at the top of their hit list. And Major Elliot shot off. I shared this last night, and I'll just echo it again. You know, I've, we did a Q&A with him at uh, several events, every single event. Somebody asked him the question, when, what will Israel do if ISIS attacks Israel? And his answer was, this is a man who's Israel's top counterterrorism analyst. He said, you know, we're not worried about ISIS at all. If ISIS attacks Israel, they will have a religious experience. And so, you know, they're worried about Iran. They're not worried about ISIS. Talking about Iran, it's puzzling to me that, you know, that at the end of the six-month extension on sanctions against Iran on November 24th, when we had them back at the table to negotiate, you know, how, you know, what things were going to go, we didn't put, you know, Pastor Saeed Abedini on the, as a chip on the table. He's got an eight-year sentence because he's a Christian. His dad, they think, was a Muslim, and because he's not a Muslim, they consider him an apostate. He's a pastor of a church in, in Boise, Idaho. And I did a presentation there about three months ago, and his, ma, his wife and sister-in-law came. And, um, you know, they are just beside themselves that the, that the United States is in negotiations with Iran. And they're, you know, th- that father and husband, an American pastor, an American citizen, is not even on the bargaining table. It's not even the, in the discussion of the negotiation chips. And just to give you an idea how, how tough we are, how, we, how tough as nails we are in negotiating with Iran, when they came to us and they, and they did not bend one iota to the terms and conditions that we demanded in, in ceasing their nuclear program, we, you know, we showed them. We really fixed their wagon. We gave them seven billion, I'm sorry, $5 billion and seven more months to think about it. But, but Saeed Abedini wasn't even in, in the narrative. One thing that, that is very deceiving, and you'll see this uh, explained verbatim in a moment, is that it's a, it's, a, it's a despicable technique. 
uh, ISIS comes into a town, they may just have a few numbers, and they'll they'll go in and they will they will go house to house to house, and they'll ask people to you know to identify themselves. And if they claim that they're a Muslim, they'll ask them to recite the Quran or a verse from the Quran, and they will discern to their best ability if they have a Shiite accent or if they have a Sunni accent. If they think they have a Shiite accent, the person's done. The person's dead, assassinated on the spot. Uh, if they have a Sunni accent, they are given the opportunity to join their ranks. If they are told that they're a Christian, then they paint a one-eyed smiley face on the house. And they're told, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have some folks that are going to come by the house. They're, this is going to let them know to knock on your door. And then we're going to, uh, what they're going to do is they're going to give you a choice. You can think about this. You can convert to Islam and, and become part of the movement. You can pay a dhimmi tax and uh, an extortion tax where you can live as a second-class citizen. You can leave with all your property behind or we'll cut your head off. We, you can be beheaded. Those are your four options. The reality is, is that uh, they would go ahead and they'd agree to pay the tax. And after they had paid the tax and it was, it was guaranteed and they'd exhausted every avenue to assure that, you know, that they could identify where all their assets were, anything that was hidden or buried or treasured away, and then once that was at hand, then they, the men would be murdered, the women would be sold into slavery, and the women, the, the daughters, the young daughters, would be sold off as wives. Boko Haram, we've been hearing more, more about them. Well, you know, a week ago, Al-Qaeda would, came out and made a formal press announcement that ISIS is crazy and that they denounced their behavior. Al-Qaeda said ISIS is crazy, and Boko Haram who we see just kidnapping scores of, of young Christian girls from Christian schools in Nigeria, uh, they, they, they just did a different press announcement where they announced allegiance with ISIS and admiration. Boko Haram, since November 13th, or no, I'm sorry, November 2013, have killed over 10,300 Christian Nigerians. And nobody knows how many uh, you know, that they have uh, had kidnapped and sold off into slavery. And a lot of people are saying, you know, again, we look at those passages, say, you know, we're told that we're going to be persecuted, you know, for his namesake. This is the highest level of persecution in the history of the church. The highest level of persecution in the history of the church. And ISIS has the blue ribbon. They are the title holder of that persecution. Four months ago, I couldn't say that. Four months ago, we'd have to say North Korea. North Korea goes back and forth. North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria. Uh, you know, they wrestled, those, those countries have wrestled for first and second place for persecution of Christians. But ISIS has taken the first place title on that. Pope is, the Pope now, the Pope has actually condoned the use of military force. But he's pulling out all the stops to bring Muslim leaders into the dialogue. And, and every denomination, every flavor and strain of Christendom to try to dialogue and figure out what, what the world can do collectively, not waiting for the United Nations, but what we can do, what people like you and I can do. I don't know if you're aware, but most of the major Shiite and Sunni Muslim organizations across the country last week denounced ISIS. I don't know how hollow a ring that has to it. I don't know how, you know, I've not read the text or heard the inflections in their voice. It's kind of encouraging. It's better than them, you know, running one of their flags up the pole at their mosque. But, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I shared this last night, but when Pastor Tim and I and a number of other pastors go to Israel, we're going to go across the street from the Knesset. 
and we're going to visit the Bible Land Museum. Oh. I didn't I didn't even see this coming. I didn't even We're going to go into the Bible Land Museum and we're going to go to the Nineveh exhibit. And we're going to stand before the artifacts that were taken from Jonah's tomb, one of the most historic important sites in the Jewish history. And as we're appreciating the relevance and significance of what we're looking at, we will be reminded that we're, we are looking at the only trace of its existence on the world, on the planet. Because it had been, Jonah's tune had been turned into a Shiite mosque. And it was considered, you know, an icon of idolatry. And so as soon as ISIL arrived in Mosul, a.k.a. Nineveh, they erased it from the face of the earth. And it's gone. And so we will, what we will be looking at in January will be something very precious. What's going on? This is truly a living nightmare that's not going away. Uh, Christianity in Mosul is dead, and a Christian holocaust is in our midst. Seven weeks ago, we went to Washington, D.C., and we actually were calling this a Christian genocide. And since then, day by day, it's getting worse and worse. More children are being beheaded. Mothers are being raped and killed. The fathers are being hung. Right now, uh, 300,000 Christians are in Iraq fleeing, living in neighboring cities, just wanting a chance not just to survive, but to live. And we've been talking on State Department. Uh, we had a, a meeting at the White House last week with Ben Rhodes, uh, myself and other Calian community leaders throughout the country. And what we're saying is, Folks should follow Francis Lee. They should offer asylum. The world community should come together. We've had tremendous success in Washington with Congressman Juan Vargas authoring H.R. 683. I, I, I want to go back. Forgive me for interrupting. I want to go back to something you said because uh, the atrocities committed by ISIS are well known. But still, you're, you're, you're startling me with the severity of what you're describing. You say they are beheading children? They are systematically beheading children and mothers and fathers. The world hasn't seen uh, an eagle like this for generations. Uh, there's actually a park in Muslim that they've actually beheaded children and put their heads on a stick and they have them in the park. This is crimes against humanity. The whole world should come together. This is much broader than a community or, or a faith. This is crimes against humanity and they're the, doing the most horrendous, the most heartbreaking crimes you could think of. Now, I want to ask you specifically about what happened in Mosul, because uh, it was widely reported that when ISIS took control of Mosul, which, depending on how you do the numbers, is the second largest city in Iraq, they gave Christians an ultimatum, which would be to convert to Islam, to pay a fine, or, in, in their phrase, death by the sword. It's very clear. Um, they are killing people, but are, are Christians managing to escape by, by paying a fine? Are, are the ones who cooperate, at least, assured of any safety? Sure. So the letter that they sent out with those three items, uh, they did ask to pay a fine, but they're actually, after they pay a fine, they're actually taking uh, over their, their wives and their daughters and making them into their wives. So really it's convert or die, uh, face death by the soul. That's the fate of your Christian wives and daughters right there. If ISIS gets their hands on them, they will be put in a, in a burqa and chained together, and they will be sold into either as wives or sex slaves. 
you know, when we, uh, when CFI weighed in uh, with a freshman senator uh, from Kentucky by the name of Rand Paul, one of the first things that Rand Paul did when he was enjoying his office was uh, he came out and he, made a, he did a press conference. He said, you know, we need to be fiscally responsible and we need to cut all foreign aid. And some of the folks in the room said, all foreign aid? Does that include the foreign aid to Israel? And he said, all foreign aid. And he was reminded that we are, you know, six years into a 10-year pledge with Israel. Uh, they're the only nation in our history that has ever accepted a foreign aid package that was designed to end at the end to wean themselves off, that it actually had a sunset clause. Everybody else wants it to get bigger every year. They want to wean themselves off of reliance. And, uh, and he said, all foreign aid. And so we said, so our press sec, our uh, press agent said, "Could you do me a favor? Could you give us the uh, email address that we could have our our members contact you and kind of let their, let you know their thoughts?" And the answer was, "We you know we're, we haven't even unpacked our boxes in the office yet. We don't." And so he was able to get us the email uh, for his I guess his press agent, and uh, I shared you know with you this morning uh, that and this is probably one of the one of the biggest gaping chinks in our armor as Christians is our obliviousness to the understanding of the significance of our single voice. And I'm going to echo this as I did this morning because there are folks here that weren't here this morning. If, if there's a serious issue and you are articulate and respectful, appreciative and professional, you don't allow yourself to become nagging white noise filling up the email box of your elected official with every petty, you know, you know, there are people that aren't taking their dogs off leash at the park. I mean, you save, you keep your powder dry and choose your battles. Then you, then, then when your email comes in or when your single phone call comes in, your elected official thinks it represents about a thousand people. 999 of them didn't bother to take three minutes to weigh in. And when you fill out a postcard and mail it in the old fashioned way, it jumps up to about 10,000 people. 9,999 didn't bother to take the time. That's the formula. And the reason I'm telling you that is so that you can appreciate what happens next. So Rand Paul, he does this, you know, he, no, all foreign aid. We'll even have to break the pledge if we have to. So we sent out, a, you know, hey, hey guys, to our 1.5 then million members. What do you guys think about Rand Paul's comments? About six hours later, he's got 30,000 emails in his inbox. Does another press conference. Maybe not all foreign aid. You know, we'll have to re- reassess that. And so I just say that uh, to let you know that Rand Paul just came out and he said, you know, we may be doing drone strikes, but Rand, Rand Paul, this libertarian, I mean, this, you, you can tell that you're, it's, a, it's a weird world when France and Germany are Israel's best friends in, in, in you know, Europe. And, and we're doing nearly cooperative strikes on ISIS with Iran. It's a weird world, and it gets weirder when Rand Paul, this libertarian, you know, under the veil of being a Republican, is actually going to introduce to Congress or to the Senate an official declaration of war against ISIS. And so, you know, that happens while another prospective presidential candidate is challenging us to understand and try to sympathize with what would drive them. You know, so it's uh, it's a curious world that we live in. But... um, you know, one of the allegations, and dare I would even say blood libel charges, that's used to delegitimize, no, not, not de- to demonize Israel, 
and to continue to, to make it that open, festering wound and to make public opinion of it sour is that it is cruel and actually performs ethnic cleansing on its Christian communities, that its Christian communities are persecuted in Israel. So let me challenge you with something, because there's a really super undeniable fact about Israel. They're really very good at anything that they do. Whatever they put their hand to, it's going to be the best that can be done in the entire planet. So if they were going to be doing ethnic cleansing of Christians, these numbers would not add up. When David Ben-Gurion pronounced Israel's independence, there were 35,000 Christians living in Israel. Today, there's 170,000 Christians living in Israel. When David Ben-Gurion announced their independence, the Christian population and the Arab countries around Israel were about 20% in most places. Today, they're about, but they vary between 1% and 5%, and that's before we can take the tolls with Syria and Iraq. It's probably going to be lower than that. It might even be you know, in, in the fractions of a percent. But I'm just saying to Israel's defense, if Israel wanted to persecute and, and cleanse Christians from the terrain, they wouldn't have more than quadrupled. I can assure you that. So, uh, so we decided to retool our organization and add persecution of Christians and speaking out against it as one of our talking points, one of the things that we were going to take very seriously. And when we went to Washington, D.C., we learned a very alarming, troubling fact that, that really shook us. Since 1998, your and my elected officials have had a, a resolution on their desk that no one has had the backbone to bring to the floor to talk about. And it was the Congressional, it was the congressional Envoy for Religious Freedom. And uh, basically it meant that if you were going to receive foreign aid from the United States, you had to protect your religious minorities, including Christians. That's what the several you know, pages distilled down to. My iPhone app, GovTrack, told me when we pulled into D.C. in July of 2013 that that resolution had a 4% chance of anybody bringing it to the floor and a 0% chance of passing if anybody brought it to the floor. And so we decided to get creative, and instead of just sending out an email, we generated a three-minute video action alert that would educate people in three minutes of what I tried to do in 90 minutes tonight, and, and at the end tell them, all right, what are you going to do about it? Contact your elected official, let them know about that piece of res- that resolution on their desk, and, and see who's going to bring it to the floor and see who's going to vote if somebody brings it to the floor. And this is the action alert that we issued. For thousands of years, minorities, religious, ethnic, and national, have suffered discrimination, persecution, and death at the hands of the majority populations among whom they lived. In modern times, the preservation and respect for minorities, as written in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is a fundamental requirement for countries which want to be part of the international family of nations. Today, we are witnessing a tragic violation of minority rights in the Middle East. Throughout the region, ancient Christian communities are under constant attack and are rapidly collapsing. Church bombings, incitement, kidnap and torture, rape, forced conversions, discriminatory laws, desecration of cemeteries, executions of people who converted to Christianity. These attacks are carried out by extremist Muslim regimes like Iran and Saudi Arabia and organizations such as Al-Qaeda, Hamas and Islamic Jihad. 
the allies and spiritual brothers of the Islamic terrorists who attacked America on September 11th. As the survivors of these attacks flee the region, ancient Christian communities that predate the birth of Islam by centuries are disappearing before our eyes. At the dawn of the last century, Christians represented 20% of the population of the Middle East. Today, Christians represent a mere 5% of the population and shrinking fast. Only one country, smaller than 1% of the Middle East, stands out as an island of religious freedom and tolerance for all minorities who enjoy full equality of citizenship and have risen to the heights of society. Since Israel's independence, its Christian population has grown dramatically and enjoy a high standard of living. The exceptions to the rule are in areas which came under Palestinian control through the peace process. Areas where Israel can no longer protect the Christian minority from terror, harassment and intimidation. In its International Religious Freedom Act, 1998, the U.S. government declared that freedom of religion is a crucial component of American foreign policy. Now, it's time the U.S. implements its declarations. States which practice tolerance for minorities should be encouraged and strengthened. States which persecute minorities should be deprived of any kind of assistance. Our Christian brothers are being persecuted in the Middle East. The silence must end. Seven weeks after that went out, that resolution was brought to the floor and it passed 412 to 22. And now, because it's on the radar, our elected officials are looking at everything that they can creatively and effectively do to try to put, this, put stops to this, whether it be militarily or trying to find out how to stop the, the black market channels that, the, that that oil revenue is being pumped into to ISIS and, and other organizations. Uh, so I'm not, you know, it can be as simple as filling out that blue and white pledge card so that you can weigh in with an email or a phone call, or it could be as extensive as taking your finances and join us in D.C. or giving a gift to send a college student to go to D.C. so that they can come back and plant a, a, a chapter on the College of, of North Arizona, Northern Arizona University right here. And so uh, uh, one of the things that, w- that we do, and, and we, Pastor Tim and I and these other pastors, we will meet with Father Gabriel Nadoff. He is an Arab Christian. Uh, he is an Orthodox priest. He's head of a parish of 50,000 Christians. And he looked around and he saw that all of his brothers and sisters around the region were being murdered or turned into refugees. And here he is in Israel, where the IDF is protecting his right to practice his faith as he deems fit. And so he said, we need to invest back into Israel. And, you know, we need to recruit and, and encourage our sons and daughters, our Arab Christian sons and daughters, to enlist in the IDF and stand next to the Israeli soldiers and let them know that this is our country. We may be Christians, but we are going to protect our Christians and protect the nation that protects us. And under his watch, it's more than quadrupled. The enlistment went from, I think, 90 a year to over 400 enlistments a year because he was pointing out the, the, just the, the urgency of, of making that claim. Uh, he's, he was recently uh, called to the U.N., to point out to the United Nations that the only place in the Middle East that Christians are safe is in Israel. And so he's a precious, precious man. But, uh, you know, I shared this 
earlier today, today, and I'll just share it again because it's easy for us to write, to wring our hands about all that's going on. But again, you know, the 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 center of the of the Middle East, the center of the universe, Jerusalem, uh, is not being defended by us or by Kufi or by the United Nations. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those Christians that are in Israel, it's not the IDF that's watching over them. They they are under the shield of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and do they come under persecution? Yes, they do. Uh, but they they stand up and and and, um, and they survive. And so, uh, you know, I, I I'm not here to share Bible passages with you about whether we should lobby for military actions. I'm here. Uh, you take a look at our cornerstone passage of Isaiah 62. Uh, the Lord has put watchmen on the wall. And uh, one of the charges, you know, if you do a tour of this church, you'll see different ministries that are available to this church, as is in any church. And uh, today when we were out at uh, lunch, uh, we noticed that one of the fellows at the restaurant was wearing a Bikers for Christ uh, leather vest. I can pretty much guarantee you that the Bikers for Christ guy does not check in with the Mothers of Preschoolers ministry when he shows up on Sunday morning. He's got the Bikers of Christ ministry. And we tend to gravitate towards those ministries that are interesting to us, but we want to say that they were our gifting and calling. But they, we, we, you know, I gravitate towards the fly fishing ministry. And uh, the reality is, is that if you look at Isaiah 62, it, you don't compartmentalize uh, ministries in Isaiah 62. There's a, there's a, there's a category of pe- Christians or people that the Lord is commanding that they give himself and themselves no rest until he makes Jerusalem the praise of all the earth. And the category is anybody that calls upon his name, anyone that makes mention of the Lord. If that's you, and if you would like to use this resource, this vehicle, this ministry, as a megaphone for your voice so that you can have a greater impact, uh, along with nearly two million others, then we'd be honored to, uh, to lock arms with you. So there's more information out in the foyer. Please consider joining us in D.C., I'm sorry that I ran long, but I don't get to flag stuff very often. I wanted to squeeze every moment out of it that I could. So on that note, uh, I'm going to turn this back over to uh, Pastor Tim. God bless you all. From the guest of Pastor Tim Masters and Victorious Life Christian Center with this week's message on the Destined to Win podcast. Destined to Win is made possible with the prayerful and financial support of those destined to win. To donate online, visit vlccaz.org. That's vlccaz.org. Destined to Win is a production of Victorious Life Christian Centers with services Sunday mornings at 10 at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. I'm Joe Harding. From Pastor Tim Masters and the congregation at Victorious Life Christian Center, you're invited to join us here next week for another edition of the Destined to Win podcast.